So Psalm 32. Um, this is uh, second to last week in the Psalms, and so we are winding up our time. We'll be back in Luke uh, starting two weeks from now on July 11th. Um, but as we close in the Psalms, uh, I kind of like to end on some high notes. And so Psalm 32 is one of those Psalms. Hopefully you're familiar with it. You might have read it before. There's been songs written about it. There's all kinds of amazing insights from this Psalm uh, into our daily practice, into our daily lives. And so as we begin our study in this Psalm, um, I would like to just open us really quick in a word of prayer, and then we will get into the text together. Lord, would your spirit be with us tonight as we dive into your word? May you guard my mouth and my heart uh, and edit in what you want in and edit out what you want out. Lord, we soften our hearts that we would be receptive to your word. Give us insight, give us clarity. And Lord, most of all, would you be with us so that we can worship you tonight through the reading and through the study of your word. In your name, amen. So the title of this psalm, the title of this study is going to be The God Who Puts Sin to Death. The God Who Puts Sin to Death. Psalm 32 is almost like a, a milestone in the psalms. It, along with Psalm 51, are one of the two pinnacle psalms that often get used and cited as forgiveness of sin or atonement psalms. In Psalm 51, you're probably familiar with that, where David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And then he pleads with God not to take his spirit from him, and he, he thanks God that he has forgiven him. And that psalm unpacks a theology of forgiveness according to David and according to the Holy Spirit. Psalm 32 is much the same. So as the main theme of this psalm is forgiveness, one of the things we need to talk about before we get into forgiveness is we need to talk about what is sin. In order to be forgiven, you need to understand what sin is. What are you being forgiven of? So the question then is, what is sin? Augustine, who's an early church father, defines sin as this. He says, sin is a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. I'll say that again. Sin is a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. Now think about all three pieces of what he just named. Sin is word, what you say. Sin is deed, what you do. And it's also desire, your inclinations. And that third one might strike you as maybe too much, maybe too high a definition of sin. Because if you think about your own life, you can control the words that come out of your mouth. Some of us imperfectly can control those things, but in some sense, you have control over the words that come out of your mouth. The deeds that you do, even our own legal system, holds you responsible for the deeds that you do. But your desires, there is no law that holds you accountable to your desires except for the law of God. His perfect, holy law holds you accountable not only for your words, not only for your deeds, but even more so for your desires. For your words and your deeds are merely a reflection of what's going on inside your heart. It's not your actions that separate you from God. It is your sin nature, that desire level of sin that separates you from God. In 1 John 3, 4, and 5, John makes the argument that sin is lawlessness. And then he unpacks that further and he says that the real difference between us and Christ is that Christ has no sin in him, but we have sin in us. What that means not is that Christ was not tempted. We know that Christ was tempted by Satan. But Christ's temptation and our temptation are different. 
There's a big difference between us and Christ. You see, we sin because we desire to sin. Christ did not sin. He could not sin because he had no desire to sin. While he was tempted, he was tempted externally by Satan. We are sometimes tempted externally, but more often than not, if you evaluate all the times in which you sin, consider that the, ma- the vast majority of your temptation comes internally, from your own heart, from your own desires. Christ was never tempted internally. He had no sin in him. And so therefore, when Augustine says that sin is word, deed, or even desire, he drives the point home that it's not only your actions that are in misalignment with God's law that are sinful, but it is your thoughts and your longings and the things you see as lovely that God looks at and sees as not lovely. And therefore, we are called into account by the eternal law of God. In the world of medicine, you look at things as being either healthy or unhealthy, and the way you decide what is healthy or unhealthy is you look at the normal population and you see what is best for most people. That's how medicine has standardized things like blood pressure, things like your blood sugar levels, things like how many years you should live, how much your oxygen count should be in a lab test. And what happens when you go to the hospital, the first thing that they'll do is they'll run a a series of lab tests on you and they'll compare the results of your lab tests and your blood work to what's considered the normal range or the normal results. And this is how they decide what is normal and what is abnormal, and the abnormalities are where they look to diagnose disease, sickness, and to treat treat all kinds of illnesses. But if we were to diagnose our sin by that same standard, we can't do that. Because what's normal for us is to be in rebellion. What's normal for us is to be wicked. What's normal for us is to come back in rebellion towards God. And so the abnormal thing for us is to be in right relationship with God. So we can't look around at ourselves and see, well, what do most people do? That's a good thing. What do most people not do? That's a bad thing. That's how society thinks that we diagnose good and bad. But we know that we need an objective moral standard that transcends society, that transcends the normal. And that standard is the law of God. You can find the law of God reflected in Exodus 20. You can find it reflected in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. The law of God, which was fulfilled in Christ, is a reflection of God's moral code, which means even though it was fulfilled in Christ, it still is a reflection of what God considers to be good, which means the Ten Commandments are still in effect, not binding on Christians, but still in effect because they reflect God's perfect moral will for our lives. And so between his eternal law and us knowing that even our desires that go against that law are sin, we now can begin to understand forgiveness. Because what you should be feeling right now is an overwhelming sense of inadequacy with your own desires. Because your own desires, even in reflection today, have in some way, in some measure, violated God's law. Even as converted believers, Paul identifies in Romans 7 that the very thing he wants to do, he can't do. The thing he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing because his desires are contrary to God's desires and he recognizes those ill desires are the things that govern him. And so with these two realities, we need a forgiving God. Not religious codes, not actions, not morality to govern us, but we need forgiveness and power to fight against that sin. We don't need more rules and actions. We need new desires in our hearts. So as we understand this text, I want to break it down into four divisions. The four divisions I want you to see with me 
are in verses 1 and 2, we will see the death of sin. The death of sin. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, I would like you to see with me the freedom of repentance. Then, in verses uh, 6 and 7, I want you to see the urgency of the moment. And then lastly, in verses 8 through 11, we're going to see the joy of obedience. And so as we get into the actual text itself, look with me first at the death of sin in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Back a while ago, you might remember from our study in Romans, for those of you who were with us, that in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 and 8, Paul quotes this exact same verse, these two verses, and he uses that in his argument for salvation by faith alone. And his argument is that the one who is blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is not counted. And then he goes on to say that this person who's blessed isn't blessed because they're a Jew or because they're a Gentile, but they are blessed because they have been forgiven and that this forgiveness is not limited to Jew only. This forgiveness is for Jew, Gentile, slave free. All can be reconciled by this salvation. So Paul, in his argument for salvation by faith alone, uses these verses as the foundational understanding for what atonement is. The word blessed here means happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'll remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You could substitute in the word happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. What David is saying here is that the person who is at the pinnacle of happiness, the person who can experience the most amount of joy, is the person who has been forgiven by God. The person who is blessed is the person who has been forgiven by God. Happy is the one whose sin has been pardoned by Almighty God. Because there's no happiness that can exceed that joy of the debt being forgiven, and there is no happiness that comes even close to that kind of joy. You'll know this because if you have experienced this kind of joy, this freedom from death to life, you can reconcile that that was probably one of the pinnacle moments of your life. That's a day you will never forget. Finally realizing that Jesus paid it all on the cross and that you have no more outstanding debt to God. Psalm 119 verses 1 and 2 say, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. You get the idea. Happy is the one whose way can be seen without blame before God. David identifies this throughout the Psalms. Jesus teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount. The person who is most happy is the one who has experienced the full pardon. Now, it needs to be said, this is not a work that can merit the pardon. In the United States, we have student loan forgiveness programs. We have programs where if you go and serve in a certain community or in a certain uh, area or in a certain career field for maybe five, six, seven years, depending, you can have a certain portion of your outstanding student debt forgiven. And some people do that. And what is true is that they are forgiving you for more debt than you could have paid back during that time. So in some ways, it's a good deal. But in other ways, that is a work that you are meriting. 
And at the end of that time, when your debt is forgiven because of what you did, you don't see it as a blessed thing. You don't see it as a good thing. You see it as something that was owed to you because you served your time and now you get the reward. It was a good deal, but you earned that reward. In Christianity, the true happiness of forgiveness is knowing that you could not have possibly merited the reward. There was nothing you could do. There's no amount of time you can serve as a Christian. There's no amount of moral law that you can obey to merit that reward. It's not like you're doing some small amount of good deeds and God is going to forgive an outstanding amount of debt of your sin. It's you can do nothing. God forgives everything. Full stop. Which is why that person is the happiest person. Because there was nothing they could have done to earn it. It's not owed to them. It is unmerited favor by God. Someone who is undeserved and experiences forgiveness is the happiest, most joyful person that you can meet. In this text, we use two words to describe the removal of sin. You'll see there in verse 1, the one whose transgression is forgiven. And the second one is whose sin is covered. So between those two, you have forgiveness and covered, both describing how sin is removed or how sin is pardoned. And between the two of those, you get a complete picture of what it's like. We are not to understand God's forgiveness of sin as him sweeping our deeds under the rug. It is not as though he can overlook bad sins and ignore them and pass us on into eternal life. Because to do so would be to make God unholy. It's not like he's doing an under-the-table deal, covering things that exist, and then passing us along into eternal life. Some religious systems believe that if you do enough good works, that by the end of your life, God will weigh the good and the bad, and he'll take into account the good, and then he'll sweep all the bad away, and then you'll be in eternal life. But the Christian understanding of forgiveness is not only a covering that is made or a concealment over sin, but it is also forgiveness, the lifting or the removal of sin from the person. In the uh, Israelites' time in the wilderness, you get the picture of the scapegoat, the goat that had the sin of Israel put on him, and then he was cast out and removed away into the wilderness. Forgiveness is not the covering of something that exists. It is also the removal or the complete removal of something that exists. So between those two, we get an understanding of how God forgives his people, how God pardons sin. Otherwise, God would be unholy or unjust to do some kind of shady, under-the-table deal to get rid of our sin. It is a real, actual facing of the consequences of sin, a full payment of what was owed, and then we get to experience all the joy and the benefits. How is that possible? Well, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 and 8, we're going to get one such picture about how that is possible. There's many in Scripture. For the sake of time, we'll only do a few. Exodus 12, verses 5 through 8. And you will see how God makes a covering on behalf of his people. Exodus 12, verses 5 through 8 goes like this. Moses is telling the people about how they are to experience the escape of the wrath of God. And he says, Your lamb, the lamb you're going to kill, shall be without blemish a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house, 
in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And then skip down with me to verse 12. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The message is this. There is a judgment that is coming, and there needs to be a covering made. And the covering requires a sacrificial lamb and blood spread as a covering, as a substitute, that the firstborn lamb dies in the place of the firstborn child. This lamb acts as a substitute. But this substitute is not a perfect substitute. We know that Paul says in Romans 3.25, in his divine forbearance, that being God's divine forbearance, he passes over former sins. But we know that he doesn't eternally pass over former sins because the lambs point to a more perfect sacrifice that is to come one day. And you'll notice there in this text in Psalm 32, it concludes that blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice again, this is not a trick. This is not uh, some kind of game or some kind of charade that God is doing. This is no deceit, payment of sin on behalf of his people. You need to trust in the substitute that God has provided. In Isaiah 53, we get another such picture of the substitute, and it says it like this. Isaiah 53 Verses 4 and 6. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's speaking of the perfect substitute. That perfect substitute is Jesus Christ who came to this earth and lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law fully, was born without sin, had no internal desire to sin. He lives the perfect life and then he goes to a cross and dies, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, to save his people. He is obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and on that cross, the full wrath of God is poured out for sin. That wrath is the dealing with sin. This is how God can be both fully just and fully merciful to his people. He's not an unholy God that sweeps sin under the rug, but he deals with it through himself, that he might be both the just and the justifier of the believer. This Jesus was fully God and fully man, the perfect man, who died in the place of all men, so that through him the many may be made righteous. Christ Jesus is that substitute. Have you trusted in the substitution? If you have not trusted in the substitution of Christ Jesus in your place, you need to know that the wrath of sin is a just wrath of God. God's punishment is just. He is a holy God who has a perfect standard. And you can try as you might, but you will never make that standard. But Christ Jesus already did, and he says, look to me and be saved. 
That's it. He stands in our place, perfectly justifying all of us, making a covering, making a removal of our sins and clothing us in his righteousness. And through his divine forbearance, Jesus was the ultimate substitute so that Christ doesn't punish, so that God doesn't punish our sins, but he lays them on Christ. So you see here David's understanding of forgiveness, that sin must be covered, sin must be removed or forgiven, and the man who has no sin counted against him is the one who is the happiest that can exist. We'll see secondly then the freedom of repentance. So not only do we see the death of sin, we see the freedom of repentance in this text. Verse 3 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Note with me, first and foremost, the damage that is done by unconfessed sin. When you confess sin, you receive the full forgiveness. But when you do not confess sin, verse 3 is an adequate description. David says, when I kept silent, meaning he does not confess his sin, he knows it, he feels it, but he keeps silent, my bones wasted away. Remember, the Psalms are poetry. What David is talking about is the bones, the very foundation of who he is, his structural integrity, if you will, is rotting from the inside out. His soul is being corrupted by the fact that his sin has gone unconfessed. He keeps silent and it causes his bones to waste away. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says the same thing to the believing church and he says the reason some of you are dying and getting sick from taking communion is because you don't self-examine and you take communion anyway without fully confessing the sins that you know exist among you. Here David identifies his bones wasting away. And this is despite his groaning all day long. Groaning and crying out is not the same thing as praying for forgiveness and confessing sin. You can be very loud and very guilty of your sin without ever confessing it. You can tell your sin to other people and confess it to others, but if you never take it to the person who can actually forgive your sin, that's not confession. We are Christians, which means we don't believe we need any mediator except for Christ Jesus alone, which means he's the person you go to for forgiveness. Concealed sin is not, uh, will, will, God's hand will be heavy upon us when we conceal our sin. You notice that he's not, uh, he's not going to just leave us there sitting in our grave clothes, and he's not content to let us do that. It says in verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David says that he couldn't have any peace, any sleep, any escape, because the Spirit of God, his hand, was upon David to press him and make him uncomfortable and make him feel the weight of his sin, which was in order to drive him to the cross. It was in order to drive him to forgiveness in God. He says his strength was dried up. He was gone. He was spent. But notice the change of pace that happens in verse 5. Verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse 5 is the full pardon that David experiences. He says that he had unconfessed sin that he was holding on to. It caused great pain in him. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. And now 
God moves forward and presses him up to the point where he confesses his sin. And he says, I acknowledge my sin. I don't cover my own sin. And I find full pardon in you. His spirit finds rest in Christ. Christ Jesus is his resting place. God pardons David's sin because David is faithful to confess his sin. Notice the contrast between verse 5 and verse 1. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man whose sin is covered externally by God. And verse 5 says that David has to acknowledge that he cannot cover his own sin. You'll remember in Scripture the story of Genesis where Adam and Eve commit the very first sin. And one of the first things they do is they make a covering for themselves over their nakedness. And God, in his graciousness, when he finds them in that state, he says, that's not a fitting covering. I will make a new covering for you. And so we get the first picture of God making a covering on behalf of his people. You see, our coverings are merely vines sewn together. They're nothing special. They're not great coverings, and they don't do a good job of concealing sin. And yet, we run around thinking that our coverings are sneaking by God, who knows all things, who understands all things, who perceives all things. And we take our coverings, and we hide our sin, and we press it down, all the while having his hand heavy upon us, begging us to bring our sin before him because he has a far better covering for us. It is not as though he's telling us to bring our sin to him so he can punish us at that moment. He says, bring your sin to me because I can give you a far better covering than you could ever make for yourself. And my covering is an eternal covering which never needs to be sewn back together and never needs to be patched up. My covering covers you for all eternity. My covering is a perfect substitution. It is not by the work of human hands that we make a covering. It is by faith in God and the covering that he has provided on our behalf. Like the Israelites in the Passover who trust in the covering God provides and paint the blood on the doorposts, we must trust in the covering that God provides. We don't conceal our own sin, and in us not concealing our own sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. David says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and then the confidence statement at the end, and you forgave, past tense, forgave the iniquity of my sin. David, as soon as he confesses it, receives forgiveness. He experiences the full pardon of sin at that moment. And this is David experiencing the joy that he just talked about earlier. He is forgiven of his sin. Now the question is, how can we understand or how can we confidently rely on the fact that God will always forgive our sins? I suppose it's a fair question because as Christians, we live in a temporal world where we don't see our sin coming, right? We live our lives and we don't know what sins are on the horizon for us. We know the sins in the past, kind of, because we can remember some of them, but not all of them. And we're not even really fully aware of the sins in the present because we're only aware of maybe even a fraction of the sins we commit because there are sins at the desire level that are against God. So how is it that we can trust that God will fully forgive our sins every time we confess them? It's a fair question. The answer lies in the fact that God, being perfect, forgives perfectly. God, being perfect, forgives our sin perfectly. He doesn't just forgive our sin up until the point that we have confessed it to other people. He doesn't forgive the sin that you've decided to share with others, and he doesn't forgive that version of you, but all the stuff you've decided not to tell anyone, but you know still exists. He forgives that too 
perfectly because his sin and his, or his forgiveness of sin is perfect. He doesn't even just forgive the sin that you're aware of and that you don't confess. He forgives the sin that you're not even aware of that you're committing, but he knows because he knows perfectly. And so he forgives us all of our sin. He forgives our sin both past, present, and future. And we know this, and we can be confident in this, because Christ Jesus, when he dies on the cross, had each and every one of us in his mind's eye, thinking of our sin that was being born, thinking of you and me, and paying in full the full weight of our sin, which means we can confidently approach Christ's throne, and we can cast our sins before him, and he'll say, yep, covered that. Yep, I already took care of that one. That sin that you thought that he could never pardon, that he was somehow unaware of, and this is something that if you show it to him, he's going to kick you out of the kingdom. He's just waiting for you to bring it to him so he can say, cover that one too. He is perfect in his forgiveness of sins, which means there is no shortcoming. It is not as though heaven is lacking in some amount of forgiving power. His blood covers all sins far more than you could ever commit. And he takes this and offers it fully to us And we are the ones who doubt his goodness, his fulfillment, his success in the atonement. But he has no lack. He has no limit. His blood paid for all human sins for all time perfectly. And he does so for past, present, and future sins. Which means that David, when he says, you forgive the iniquity of my sin, that's not a one-time statement. He could say that every single time he confesses sin, because God is faithful and just to forgive all sin, past, present, and future sin. So don't delay in your confession of sin. Don't hold back, because the more you hold back, the more you experience the pain and the suffering and your bones wasting away, your spiritual integrity being rotted out from the inside. You are robbed of the joy of full intimacy with Christ, and he is just waiting for you to confess that sin so you can experience his perfect pardon. Turn with me really quick to verse 6. Sorry, I thought we were in a different text for a sec there. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Verse 6 begins a transition. That transition is the third of the points that I want to make tonight, which is the urgency of the moment. The urgency of of the moment. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And the unspoken implication there is there is at some time in the future where God may not be found to pardon sin. One day, God will no longer be the Passover who will pardon our sins. One day he will come back as a conquering king and he will separate the goats from the sheep and he will come back to bring all the rebellious people into submission. One day, the Lord will not be the forgiving God. So, you need to seek him while he is found. You need to look and seek pardon and forgiveness from Christ while he offers it freely. As we've spoken earlier, his forgiveness is full, his forgiveness is complete, and his forgiveness is lacking in no way. And we must take advantage of it while it is being offered. Verse 6 has an analogy or a link, if you will, to Genesis chapter 6. It says, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. 
Surely in the rush of great waters, bringing to you in mind the very first judgment that ever happened on the earth. The first judgment of Noah in his generation, who builds the ark, who is faithful to God, and all of that wicked generation are washed away by water, by a flood. And God makes a rainbow, and he says, I'll never wash away sins that way again. So this picture should bring to mind that first judgment. And the second judgment will be like the first judgment. The first judgment is a picture or a pattern of what the second judgment is going to be like. And you will remember that Noah warns his people. He warns, he warns, he warns. But eventually, the warnings run out, the flood starts coming, the door is shut, and whoever's outside the ark is out of luck. And notice, if you'll turn with me to Genesis 7, in Genesis 7, notice who shuts the door. Genesis 7, verse 16. The flood is coming, the warning has been made, and all the animals bored, and it says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Just like in the first judgment, the second judgment will be like it. It is the Lord who ultimately closes the door. It is not Noah who decides when the, first, when the, when the time is up and the door is shut. It is God who decides when the judgment is coming and when the door is closed. And once that door is closed by God, no one can open it. And the second judgment is like the first. Once the, do- once the Lord shuts the door, it is over. So the exhortation in the psalm is don't delay in your forgiveness. Don't delay in your confession of sin and your desire to seek out the forgiveness that Christ Jesus freely offers. In verse 7 of this same text, David says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And you see the very same person who experienced the hand of God pressing on him now experiences God not as a hand that presses upon him, but as a hiding place, a place where he can be protected from trouble and where he can, with shouts of deliverance, glorify the king. The Lord is David's hiding place. And remember what I said, the first judgment was like the second. I want to draw a parallel for you. Jesus is like the ark. Jesus is like the ark that you see in Noah's judgment. Remember, the ark is the vehicle through which Noah and his family and all the animals are spared. The judgment comes, but everything that is inside the ark, that is covered by and encapsulated and surrounded by the ark, survives. And in the second judgment, we don't get an ark. We get Jesus. And everyone who he covers, who he protects, who he surrounds, makes it through the second judgment. But again, those who are outside of his protection don't make it. Just like in the first judgment, those who are outside the ark do not survive. And the second judgment is like it. Jesus is a more perfect version, if you will, of the ark. In fact, uh, there's a quote that I read today um, on that same chapter in Genesis. And I love it, so I'm just going to read it to you. It says, While a wooden ark delivered Noah from a physical death, a wooden cross delivers us from a spiritual death. The picture is a wooden ark delivering Noah from physical death. But Noah, after he lands, begins to sin. 
Yet you and I are saved by a wooden cross, which delivers us from spiritual death and makes us glorified creatures in the life to come. When we are delivered, we are delivered in a more perfect, in a more all-encompassing, and a more final way than Noah ever was. The first judgment is like the second, but the second judgment is more final, and the second salvation is more permanent. And so you see there not only the urgency of the moment, but also the joy that is experienced here by David. He says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And he continues in verse 8, and this will be the final topic that we will cover, which is the joy of obedience. The joy of obedience. Verse 8 says, goes like this. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near to you. Remember, Christ doesn't save us and forgive us of our debts and then leave us there. He saves us and redeems us so that we can walk as children of the King. He saves us and redeems us so we can walk in a joyful obedience. Remember that happiness, that blessedness we experience in our forgiveness is made more perfect and more complete in our obedience to the Father. And here it says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. How are we instructed and taught by Scripture? Through the words of God. Through the meditation on Scripture. Through the study of it. Through bringing our lives into submission to Scripture. The way God says marriage works. The way God says we ought to live our lives. The way God says we ought to glorify Him in all that we do. Those are ways in which we bring our lives in submission to God. And here it says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Who is the I in both of these verses? The I is God. I will instruct you. God will instruct us. God will teach us. God will counsel us with his eye upon us. He looks upon us. He sees where we are. He sees where we need to go. And he counsels us. He walks alongside us. He puts his spirit in us to help us to have the power to overcome our sin nature. We're not only given instruction by God, we're given the power to overcome sin. And like we addressed earlier, We're not left with our old sinful desires. He gives us new desires. He gives us the power to live out obedience and also the desire to be obedient. These are given by God. And the psalm draws a contrast between a mule and a son. It says, don't be like the mule, be like the son. It says in verse 9, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, And what is the lack of understanding that the horse or the mule displays? It must be curbed with bit and brittle or it doesn't stay near. And when a horse and a mule wanders off, it has no more access to food. It has no more access to shelter. And it needs to be kept in its safe place with a bit and with a brittle. The mule is driven by the whip. It is driven by the bit that is in its mouth. And it is driven against its will to be obedient, to obey. A son is unlike a mule. A son is driven by love. A child is driven by joy in serving. A child is driven by obedience to the father. Perfect obedience is the desire of a kid. It's the desire of a child. And you and I are spiritual children of God. And so we shouldn't be mules, which are stubborn and need to be beaten into submission, but we should with joy embrace obedience to Christ. That means obedience even in the things we don't see as lovely just yet. 
This is the difference between dead religion and pure religion. Dead religion is works-based without any heart or any desire, any affection towards God. Pure religion is still works, but it is works that overflow from an abundance of the heart. The works are necessary to prove the faith and the desire that we have, but the works are not meritorious in any way. The works are an outflow of the obedience we are expressing internally. And so that is the difference between how a son works and how a mule works. A mule works by obligation, by obedience to the law, seeing it as a whip or a bit that restrains it. But its desire is to be gone or not the whip in place. A son stays willingly, voluntarily in his place so that he can work out in obedience the will of the Father. In verses 10 and 11 of this section, we get the final conclusion of that joyful obedience. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds you and I as we trust in the Lord. He doesn't call us to obedience and leave us on our own. He calls us to obedience and then surrounds us with his spirit, which he puts within us, and his people, which he puts around us to sharpen us and to hold us accountable and to love on us and to restrain us. And he puts all his providential works in place so that we can walk, not in temptation that is something that we couldn't possibly resist, but he gives us temptations that we could resist. And that is in his providence that he does that. Because now we are sons and he is protecting us. He is guarding us. He is walking alongside us. He is surrounding us with his steadfast love. We are under his protection and he has invested in it and he will not lose his investment. So it says then in verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for all joy, all you upright in heart. The reason we can shout, the reason we can rejoice, the reason we can find joy in this is because it's not, it's not up to us. It is not our works that ultimately determine where we end up. It is not even our level of obedience that determines where we end up. But God has promised us through his word that he will guard his investment. He will surround us. He will protect us. He will forgive us. He makes the covering. If you get the picture, the language is that God does it and we receive it. The picture is all him, none of us. We're just really along for the ride. That's true of justification. That's true of sanctification. And that's also true of glorification. Because you and I, being imperfect people, could not ever glorify ourselves. We could not ever sanctify ourselves. We can't even justify ourselves. We can't even get on that trail. But he justifies us. He works out our sanctification because it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we, with our obedience, cooperate with his sanctifying process. And ultimately, one day, we will be glorified with Christ. And that is why we can have joy. Because the work is almost as if it's already finished. Paul says in Romans 8 that the chain is unbroken. The chain starts with God, and therefore, the one who's justified will be glorified. And the, all the pieces in the middle, they're up to God, and so they can't break. Because he is perfect, he's all-powerful. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It reminds me of an old hymn, which is what I want to read for us to close. The song is, uh, How Great Thou Art. And the lines go like this. It says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, 
I scarce can take it in. That on that cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your words of encouragement to us. Lord, you are a good heavenly father. You are perfect in your forgiveness. You are perfect in your justification. And you are all powerful over these things. Lord, we just thank you that we get to be loved by you. Lord, not because we are particularly good or particularly significant, but Lord, despite all of that, you look at all of our sinfulness and you choose to die in our place anyway. God, I pray that unconfessed sin will not persist in our midst. That you will give no person rest who has a guilty before you right now who has unconfessed sin, but Lord, you would press them with your hand to the point of crying out to you. And Lord, that they would experience at that moment the full joy of the pardon that you offer. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we rejoice in your glorious forgiveness of sinful people and the confidence that we can have in you despite all that we bring to the table. In your name, amen.